track you're listening to is called Set a Fire in Your Heart, and it was composed by my next guest, Gareth Coker, for the highly anticipated Halo Infinite. Now, Gareth didn't always spend his free time composing for AAA franchises, but got his start on the equally beloved Ori series, namely Ori and the Blind Forest and the sequel, Ori and the Will of the Wisps. In this episode, we talk about how composers should drill down into finding their own voice, actionable ways composers can use in-game switches to make their music even more immersive to the player, and he explains what that term switches means, as well as how to utilize traditional pop song structure to compose great orchestral game music. That's the tip that blew my mind the most. Now, Gareth and I spoke for over an hour and we could have easily talked for another hour. This interview is just packed full of value for new and seasoned composers alike. So I'm Matt Kenyon and you're listening to Composer Code. Please enjoy my interview with Gareth Coker. So the last seven or eight years for you uh, must have just felt like an absolute whirlwind you know i've read that you got discovered on an obscure forum and then that that led to working on ori uh, which was obviously a massive success and then that of course led to ori and the will of the wisps along with a whole host of other commissions in between there and now you're even working on the halo franchise so this is just an incredible uh kind of story i would love to hear from you uh kind of the thirty thousand foot view the timeline of when you knew you wanted to be a composer when you knew you wanted to do this all the way to kind of where you are today i didn't really have it in mind to be a composer until pretty late um but you know it wasn't like I, i'd set out to be a musician from like the age of three um I was very active in school with, you know, jazz band and orchestra, and I learned a bunch of instruments. And mainly through, through jazz band, um, I found that I was good at improvising. I don't know why, I just was, and my teacher noticed. And then I just started noodling on the piano. My teacher noticed that. And they were like, you should apply to music school. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Um, and and uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but I was like, well, I've got nothing to lose apart from the application fee. So if, if, I, if I'm good enough, then I'll get accepted. And if not, I'll, I'll probably end up with go do some engineering or something, because that's probably what I would have done. Um, and so ironically, I probably would have ended up in video games anyway. Um, so anyway, I applied to the Royal Academy of Music uh, in London. It's a really good music school. And my portfolio of compositions was literally almost all piano music and some really terrible, terrible MIDI mock-up things. So I didn't have a clue how to write for orchestra. I didn't have a clue how to do anything. And my favorite story about this, obviously I got accepted, um, otherwise I don't think I'd be here uh, talking to you. And you know, I asked them, you know, why did you accept me? And they were like, well, you, you can't orchestrate. You, you, your arrangement isn't really great. You got no technical skills whatsoever. You can't conduct. Uh, they listed all the things I can't do. Uh, but then they said, well, you can write a melody, and that's the hardest thing for us to teach. And that was why they accepted me, um, because they said, we can teach you everything else. So a lot of it's very technical, and a lot of it just comes down to experience. They said, we, the hardest thing for us to teach is the sense of melody, and you already have that. Um, because that's basically what my portfolio was. It was a bunch of tunes on the piano um, with some nice harmony. Um, so then I was like, well, okay, I guess I better take this composing thing seriously now. Um, and that was at the age of 18. Um, and so ever since then, it's kind of been like a, a journey to, you know, figuring out how to get into the industry. So I did my undergrad. Then I went toward English in Japan for three years um, because I was like, no one's going to hire a 22-year-old to do anything. 
Um, and I just needed some more life experience, basically. Uh, then in 2009, I came here and uh, started studying at the University of Southern California's uh, film and game music program, um, which is a pretty prestigious program. Got accepted again. And uh, from then on, I was like, okay, I, I'm definitely good enough to like make this happen for, for real. But then there's that period of time when, you, when you're like starting out in the industry and it's just like you're in the wilderness and you've got to figure out how to make money and how to survive. And I basically said yes to everything. Did, some, did a ton of short films, did a ton of student projects, did a ton of terrible commercials, did a ton of like B-list, C-list movie trailers, like all, literally had my hands in so many, so many pots and I put my work everywhere. Um, I was quite confident in the work that I had, again, because I still had the melody thing going. And then, yeah, as you pointed out, eventually, um, Thomas Marler, the director of Ori and the co-founder of Moon Studios, he just found me on MultiDB. And the piece of music that he liked was, funnily enough, from a student film that I had written the music for. Very, very simple piece of music that he actually liked. Literally just an ambient piece with a melody on top. Um, and he basically said, would you like to do the prototype for, for Ori? Uh, well, it wasn't even called Ori at the time, but like prototype for this game that we're putting together. Um, so I can't really pay you for the prototype, but if the pitch of our prototype to publishers is successful, uh, then you can do the game. And obviously he was true to his word because the pitch was picked up by Microsoft and, uh, and here we are. And you are right. Yes, the, the, the preceding seven years has been a whirlwind um but when you get that break it's like you kind of don't know when to say no um and now i'm in the position where i'm just like i'm being a bit more choosy now about what i take on these days um but when you're getting started out it's like you get all these opportunities thrown at you and it's like yes i want to do that i want to do that i want to do that um and then then you start to realize it's like okay you can either like become a machine or you can like really apply your creative bandwidth on the projects that you really want to, to work on. Um, it's not to say that I didn't enjoy working on, I've enjoyed working on everything, but I'm like now in a position where I'm like, okay, I just want to take a breather and spend a bit more time with some of these projects and really like take a more holistic approach to, to working on, on them. Cause that's the way I find I work best. The longer I spend on a project, the more unified uh, it becomes with the, the game. Um, that the music becomes with the game. So that's, that's, I have discovered through that whirlwind the way I prefer to work the most. And, you know, I, I get quite a few offers and I'm always like, what's the studio culture? What's the, you know, how will I be working with the studio? How hands-on do you want the composer to be? Because there are some studios that want the composer to be really hands-on and there are some studios that want the composer to uh, hand off stems and then disappear. Um, there's like the whole range and, and both benefit, uh, sorry, both methods have their own benefits. Um, but I have found like kind of my, my sweet spot through that whirlwind. So, um, I'd say, yeah, act one of my career is just about done. I would say it ended at Ori, Ori in the Will of the Wisp and act two is trying to be a bit more uh, selective and, um, yeah, I mean, obviously in a very, very fortunate position to be able to do that. Do you find it hard to turn down those opportunities? Is it kind of like this sense of regret or do you feel pretty confident? Like, no, this is definitely not something for me. Well, I think now because I have confidence in what I do, like wait, the thing is you, at the beginning, 
of your career, you you want to say yes to everything because it's like, oh, my, like you said, I, oh, what if I'm turning down the next Steven Spielberg? But like, but you can't you can't go on like thinking about that because what if you end up in a great partnership with someone new and that ends up that person, you know, your partnership together might end up just being the next Steven Spielberg. You just can't you can't whoever was meant to compose another project was meant to compose another project. So, I, you know, I've, I've lost a ton of pictures over the years and, and there's some I'm like, at the time I'm like, really, they chose that person. But then I listen, but then I listen to the, the soundtrack and I'm like, Oh yeah, that totally works. It was a really good choice. And I did, and I actually didn't expect that from that composer. Um, so um, yeah, I think one of the things you'll find about most composers who keep getting work it, there's a reason for that. I mean, first of all, the you know they, they get the job done. But second of all, I've always been of the opinion that it's better to you know have a very specific style and identity because that will definitely get you in the conversation for some projects, and it'll also remove remove you from the conversation for some other projects. And that's okay. That's like I think that's the hardest part for a composer starting out to accept. It's actually okay to not be considered for every single project. It is absolutely in no way a, a reflection, a bad reflection on you as a composer. In fact, in many ways, it might be a, a better, a better reflection. Like my direct melodic approach, you know, I don't think many people would just, it's funny, people might say that Ori's music is subtle, but it really isn't. It's like, it's, it's quite in your face emotionally. It's like, yes, the music is withdrawn quite a lot, but, but actually when it comes time to, to pack the punch, it, it is pretty direct. Um, the same can be said for ARC as well um, and, and several of my other projects. And there's some, there's going to be some directors who love that and there's going to be some directors who don't and that's fine. Um, so I actually, so between that and, you know, finding the right studio culture and, and fit for me, I don't have a problem anymore and I can usually justify it to the people who are, you know, talking to me and talking to me. I'm like, they might be disappointed or I might be disappointed, but I'm like, look, there's so many amazing composers out there. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you can't score everything. It's literally impossible. And frankly, the world would be a very boring place if one person scored everything. So um, yeah, used to worry about it, but I think it's, a, I think it's a confidence thing. Like the more work you do, the more you end up figuring out what your own style is and the more you figure out what your own workflow is. Um, and the key actually to me to getting that knowledge is not just starting, starting projects, it's, you know, getting through to the end and finishing them because you learn so much when you get to the end of a project rather than midway through, because once you get to the end, you're able to evaluate, um, like what went wrong, what went right, how much did I like working with this team? How good was the relationship? Um, did they give me everything I needed? Did I give them everything they needed? Um, and so you start to, you start to learn um what works best for you but that only comes with time and experience and then of course you have to be lucky enough to get the jobs in the first place so there's a lot of things that go into it did you did you think that you had your style defined when you started on ori or was the process of working on ori sort of a a a refining of your style well i think i was exceptionally lucky on ori because there was no no real temp music i mean i remember that i think there was one track from moneyball in there which i know seems like a bizarre choice but moneyball is a fantastic ambient orchestral score and that, that's really the only one i can remember i mean if, of course you know avatar was referenced i'm like look it's Ori isn't avatar and it never will be um so it kind of needs to be its own thing 
you know, my, my process of finding the sound on Ori was just, I played the game a lot and I wrote music to my own gameplay footage that I recorded of the game. I think that's why it feels synergistic. It's the same for the second game. It's the same for as many games as I can get a hold of the actual build of the game. I'm trying to play the game myself and then write to what I'm playing. Um, and that's kind of what I was talking about with the holistic approach. It, it takes more time because um, I need to be very hands-on myself. But if I understand exactly what the player is going to be going through, then yeah, I think I can do a pretty good job. Um, and then it just comes down to my taste. And thankfully, my taste appears to be okay because people seem to like what I'm doing. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I knew. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't know what the hell I was doing when Ori was like my first big project. All I focused on was not worrying about orchestration or you know any of the technical stuff i was like does this make me feel something when i play and does it keep me immersed that's literally the only two things i was thinking about when i was writing the music for the game but and then yes you start to you know you start to develop a consistent theme and you're like oh i've got a theme now so i can drop it in various places but it was thinking about the game first and how the composition supports the game um, rather than thinking about just the music there's plenty of other composers who will do it the other way around. They'll like try and write an amazing piece of music first and then see how it fits the game. And it's totally, totally valid way of doing it. But for me, I need that like connective tissue between my brain and the game. Uh, so I find it quite hard when I'm not like given as much access to the game as I might like, because um, it does vary per, per studio. It's not impossible. It's just a different way of thinking that doesn't, doesn't necessarily suit my own workflow. And so, yeah, over the, by the time we got to the, the end of like Ori production, you know, I, I take a step back and I listen to everything that's done. I'm like, oh, this sounds pretty consistent. I have no idea why that is, but it's because the game looks pretty consistent and the gameplay is pretty consistent from start to finish and it has these peaks and valleys, you know, the peaks being the, the chase sequences and the valleys being the, the sad sequences. I'm like, well, because I follow exactly what the gameplay do is doing and the visuals you know i've matched the visuals with the music um i guess it feels like a pretty consistent soundtrack um and i think i found my sound and how i like to work on blind forest um and that kind of like stepped me up and then the last like five to six years after that is basically just refining that process and um you know trying to speed up certain things and um yeah, but I, I had no idea what I was doing on, on Blind Forest um, until really until the very end, like when it started to fall into place. But even, even the recording session, it was my first big recording session. Like, how do you, we, we recorded like 80 minutes of music in a day and a half, which is insane. Um, you know, a lot of the music's fairly easy to play, um, but it's still a lot of music to, to record. Um, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of things that you, even though music school prepares you for, like, Who's preparing you for how to print and prep like all of the parts when you have no money to hire like an actual copyist or librarian? Who's going to put that on the stand? Um, you know, who, there's so many little things that you have to think about. And I was like, okay, I, like I am never working like this again because I left things very late uh, on Ori One, uh, including like doing parts myself on the morning of one of the sessions on no on no sleep. So I was like, that's, that's never happening again. I've had some close calls, um, but I was also afraid to delegate on Ori One um, because it was kind of my baby. And 
Um, that's a mistake I learned from very, very, very quickly. And so, you know, now I'm like, oh, it's okay to delegate. I, you know, I gen, I have not delegated any composition stuff. I still write, you know, there's, there's a lot of composers. There's a lot of talk about additional music these days. I don't, don't do that. Um, but I do hand off orchestration now. Um, and of course, copying because it's, I know people who love copying. I'm like, how, how, how do you, how do you love preparing music? But hey, more power to you. Um, so um, yeah, the, the, I learned the value of delegation. And like, so when it came to doing a project like recording ARC in 2017, that was a 93 piece orchestra. And it was probably the smoothest recording I've ever had in my career. Um, it was an absolute blast. Everything was well prepped. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I was like, okay. I, I felt like after that recording at Abbey Road, I'm like, yeah, I know what I'm doing now. Um, and then since then, it, th then now that I've got like the logistical workflow of like being a composer um, who is generally working with orchestras on most projects, now I've got all of that figured out with the people who I regularly work with. Um, I don't worry about it anymore because then that allows me to focus entirely on, oh, wait, what I'm actually being hired for, which is the composing to picture part. Um, no, it's expected that the orchestration is going to be good. It's expected that the mix is going to be good. So like, you know, why are people hiring me? To spend time making sure my music fits the game. That's like the most important thing. So when you when you get a build for for Ori, say, and you mm -hmm. play through it and you have an idea, you have an emotion that you want to evoke, what do you usually turn to first? Do you pop open your DAW and grab a piano sound and just try to get basic chords and melody down? I'm really interested in kind of your workflow, getting your ideas down and getting that emotional essence uh, sort of on paper, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it depends really on the situation in the game. Uh, so I'll just give a couple of examples. Um, Luma Pools, probably the most popular environment track from Will of the Wisps, um, at least based on Spotify plays. Uh, uh, so that track, I was like, well, this area just needs to sound different. So I'm like, how am I going to make it sound different? And I was like, okay, let's just do some more adventurous harmony for once. Because um, Ori's harmony is generally pretty simple. It's mostly triads with the ninth. Um, you know, that's a very, very reductionist way of looking at it, but it's generally pretty simple. Um, I was like, well, Luma Pools is not going to be that. So let's do some jazz harmony. And I didn't really think about it like, yes, let's use jazz chords. But I'm like, let's just add some extensions to the chords. Um, and, uh, you know, the opening chord sequence of Luma Pools is pretty out there by Ori standards. Um, like if you actually transcribed it. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and actually the reason for it, the, the reason for that is tied to the gameplay. Luma Pools is really the only relaxing area in Ori 2. Now it's not relaxing in terms, you know, there's still there's still a few critters like, you know, trying to hurt you, but visually it's relaxing. Um, and then the way you move through the environment is mostly through water. And if you're familiar with the swimming mechanics in Ori, they're pretty relaxing. It's the, the, uh, the one of the biggest compliments that we've seen on Ori is that, wow, they got the water level right, because everyone hates water levels in games, but actually everyone loves the water level in, in Ori, which is very unusual. So I was like, yeah, it, these mechanics feel so good. I just want the music to feel floaty. And um, there was something about that like Gershwin-esque harmony that seemed to, to fit the setting. And so, yeah, that, that was really just starting with harmony, um, which I don't normally do. Uh, normally I start with melody or finding, finding the instrument or cool sound or whatever. 
um, patch hunting, for want of a better word. Uh, but this was like starting off with harmony. And I was like, well, that's cool. Uh, and it'll be even cooler if we do it in vocals because like floaty vocals with a bunch of reverb on them doing like this closed voice harmony going from one chord to the next is going to sound incredible. Um, and then once I got that recorded, I'm like, yep, that's the sound of the Luma pools. And then I was like, then I just need, then I went, then I went to the melody, um, which is on recorder. Um, and then after that, I was like, well, the area is sparkling a lot. So let's have a ton of bell sounds. And instead of one bell sound, let's have like five different ones and let's see if I can make it work. Um, so you kind of like bringing different bits of a puzzle together to, to make something, you know, to make something, to make something that is fitting of the area. Now, in contrast, um, Shadows of Moldwood, another popular track for very, very different reasons. Really, really the whole area of the Moldwood Forest, Shadows of Moldwood, then more of the spider and then darkness lifted. It's kind of like one big sweep. I was like, okay, how do we do horror in Ori without it being, and I mean this in, with the greatest, with the highest compliment ever. Like I was like, this cannot be dead space um, because that would be too much. Dead space is like, for me, the, like the greatest horror game soundtrack ever made. Um, and I'm thrilled it's being remastered. Um, so, um, Anyway, I was slightly off topic. Um, so I was like, how can we make horror music feel like Ori? And I was like, well, what's happening in the gameplay? And gameplay for the Mulberg Forest is basically you're shrouded in darkness and um, there are various light sources peppered throughout the environment. You've got to move from one light source to the other. And if you stay in the darkness for too long, uh, the screen like envelops you and Ori dies. So I was like, well, what's the music going to feel like if something's stalking you the whole time? And of course, you don't know until a bit later on if it's more of the spider stalking you through the environment. And I was like, okay, well, time for the Mora melody. Um, and so that's actually where I started. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I'd use a solo piano for a spider melody. Um, but once you actually meet Mora and resolve the story, you'll realize there's a bit more to it than she's just the creepy spider. Um, so I was like, it's you know, there's there's a little bit more of a personal element there. So I was like, okay, well, let's just give let's just give Mora a, a melody, but like still make it sound creepy. And there is something very creepy about a solo piano played high up with like no bass. And then I was like, okay, well, we've got the high end stuff sorted out. But I was like, well, something is stalking you and it's got to feel dangerous. And then we kind of settled on this sound of um, strings, low strings, starting on a cluster and then resolving to one note. Um, and then basically just repeating that um, several times over um, and getting louder and more intense each time. So yeah, the, the track Shadows of Moldwood is kind of divided into two sections. You've got the, the high melody, section A, and section B is like the low creepy strings that are bending and resolving to one note. Um, and then it literally just repeats itself again in a slightly different way. It's, it's honestly mostly a copy paste um, with some with some changes. Uh, I I don't mind saying that because it's pretty obvious if you listen to it. Um, so, um, and I was like, well, that's a cool environment track. Um, and so that between that, I was like, okay, well we we've got melody, which isn't like that common in horror music. Normally, it's just like stabs and screeches and all of that. And I was like, okay, well we've got a melodic element, which means of course we have something to develop. Um, so when you do actually meet Mora and actually have to go head to head with her, like, okay, well now we can do, now we can do the over the top spider boss track and you hear the same melody 
in a much more uh, emphatic manner. Um, and then once the spider boss fight is resolved, it goes to Through the Darkness and we hear the same melody again in the same environment, which is now all lit up because the environment has been resolved, except the melody is mostly in a major key. And it's very, 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 very simple. This is like composition 101, um, but you still have to do it. <laughs> um, and it's that thought process, like starting with the melody really like gave me a lot of flexibility with how to develop things through the environment. I think if I just focused on textures and, and um, you know, scary sounds, well, the way of resolving it would be take out the scary sounds, but then what do you have left? You just have some nice chords. And that's not as satisfying to me. And it's also not what Ori is about. I mean, Ori has a lot of themes. And I was like, I'm going to make sure that by the time the player is finished with this area, they can recognize Mora's theme. And so it's that level of thinking that goes into every single environment of the game. And I, you know, I could literally, that was like the cut down version. Like I could probably talk about an hour on every single environment of the game because there is genuinely that much thought that goes into it. And I tend to spend a lot of time playing the levels and thinking about what's the best way to split up the music, what's the best way to develop the music. And so by the time I actually get down to writing it, I kind of know what I'm going to do. Um, and that's only because I get to spend a lot of time with the game beforehand. That's really good. There's so many different places we could go from there. Yes. I remember <laughs> that you mentioned <clears throat> that you had also, I believe it was in the Misty Woods you had used a whole tone scale Correct, because yes. you wanted to talk about you, you wanted to uh, convey this sense of it's not something that can't be resolved or something that unresolved. It's, it's impossible to resolve the whole tone whole tone scale. It's um, I, I remember I remember doing the misty words. I'm like, well, what am I going to do here? Like, it's you know, it's the maze, and I was struggling for the longest time. And then you go back to composition 101 again. You like you know, and it's like, oh wait, yeah, there's the whole tone scale. And nowhere else in the game has the whole tone scale. Boom. Like this area will instantly stand out. Now I get to write a melody on the whole tone scale. And that's pretty much that. Uh, I mean, honestly, like after I came to the realization that the whole tone scale was the answer, uh, that four and a half minute track was probably done like three hours later. Like, because, because it, it's, it was like the aha moment. Um, but I'd spent probably several, several hours, days, maybe weeks trying to figure out like what's the best solution for it. And none of them, none of them were vibing with the gameplay. But as soon as I started writing something that was out of that major minor tonality and is instead in whole tone scale, I'm like, oh, this totally works. Like with the trippy visuals, like the, the screen kind of warps occasionally as you're walking through it and as the, as the environment changes. I'm like, yeah, this is done. And uh, I put it in the game and everyone was like, yeah, that's great. Move on, next, next piece. But it can take a long time to actually get to that point. I'm sure I frustrate the hell out of some people that I work for because like, I can take a long time to think about what is needed. And they're like, yeah, can we hear some music, please? When's the music coming? When's the music coming? Like, I never send it off until I'm confident in it because if I'm not confident in it, how can I expect the, the, the client to be confident in it? And of course, what comes back is like, but, but how can you, but like, you might be throwing away stuff that could be really good somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, it's possible, but that's not where it came from, from me. I was like, you're, you're hiring me for my vision. So let me execute it and uh, let me get it, let me get it in the game. And then if you don't like it, we'll, we'll discuss. And it's funny. I remember with Luma pools, 
a few people weren't sure about it at the beginning because it is a very, very different feeling, like kind of soundtrack compared with the rest of the game, which is quite dark. And I'm like, you need to live with this one for like a week or two um, and play it in context with the rest of the game and then tell me how you feel. You know, the rest is history. So, but I was like, that's because I had lived with it for quite a long time. And Lumapools, my version of Lumapools did not go into the game until like from start process to end like putting it in the game was about a three to four month period. So I, I worked, like I chipped away at the track for quite a while because I wanted to make sure it was, you know, I was feeling good about it because it, it was so different. But I was like, yeah, I think, I think they'll like this, but it might take a long time to accept because it's, Luma Pools is not like any other track in either Ori game. Um, we do have some light, happy sounding stuff, but Luma Pools is, is pretty out there in terms of like how upbeat it is. Um, and, you know, Ori 2 is generally a sad game. So I was like a little bit uncertain, but I'm like, at the end of the day, look at the visuals and look at the gameplay. There is nothing truly unhappy about this area of the environment, even though there are critters. They're not really that dangerous. I would say it's the easiest area of the game to navigate. You've got that crazy area with all the bubbles like going up. It's like, it's a very fun area in terms of gameplay and visuals. And I was like, that's what the music needs to reflect. Because for Ori, and thus the player, that's how they're going to feel when they're going through this environment. And that just goes to show, you know, everything that you've just said would be impossible if you couldn't actually play the game. You know, like every, like all those those influences and deductions and things right. that inform your inspiration and, and your composition process. You just you couldn't do it even if you just saw a static piece of artwork um, or even a video. You have to feel the gameplay mechanics, feel the swimming mechanics, yeah. and so. I think that's really and, cool. And there's, you know, there's, I'm sure there's several composers who are like, yeah, I can, I can write game music based on, you know, based on concept art and, and, uh, you know, maybe one like short gameplay video, but it's not the same. You can, I truly believe that you can never have the same feeling until you've had the controller in your hand. I remember when I showed the prologue to someone, um, the prologue of Blind Forest, um, the opening, opening 10 minutes of the game. And I was like, what do you think? And, uh, this person was like, oh, it's too long and blah, 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 and you need to edit it down. And I was like, okay, now do the same thing with the controller in your hand because the person had just watched a video. And I was like, just do the same thing with the controller in your hand. Oh, the length is perfect. And, and I'm, it, it's, it's amazing the psychological difference things make when you have the controller in your hand because you're actively engaged with it. You're still just walking from left to right in the prologue, basically, uh, or right to left. Um, you're not actually doing that much gameplay, but there is a difference that goes on up here um, in, in the head when you are actively engaged with something as opposed to watching it passively. Um, and so that can affect your perception of what you're experiencing. And that's why I believe that you, I do believe that you can write great game music without playing the game. There's plenty of evidence over the years to suggest that there's been tons of great game music where the composers weren't really hands-on. Um, because, you know, great music is great music. Um, but there's those games where you can just feel like that the composer was truly, truly plugged in 
to what the gameplay experience actually was. And I don't know how much they played it, but it feels like it was it was it was played by the composer. And if it wasn't played by the composer, then the composer had a really amazing relationship with the music supervisor or audio director because they who had a great understanding of like how the music could be used. But that that is a thing that is 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 much. I, I think it's going to be expected of composers in 2021 and onwards like the minimum expectation is that you deliver great sounding music um but how it gets into the game and the choice of where you put certain cues and how the music plays back that is is a much harder skill to master because it only comes with experience um and i'm not saying that every decision i've made is brilliant because i'm sure it isn't but like um you definitely increase your chances of having music play in the right place if you've played the entire game yourself rather than relying on a system uh, uh, to do that for you. Um, there's, there's been quite a few open world games that have come out in the last three to four years that I feel like all have amazing music, but um, a lot of the success of that music can be lost because it's either playing too much or the timing of when that music is played isn't hitting at exactly the right spot because it's entirely based on a system. And I think the future, especially for these large games, is you, you do need the systems-based music where you're having like an engine playback, you know, different mixes and stuff like that. But there, also, there needs to be a balance between the systems-driven music and then stuff that is crafted by hand um, throughout the throughout the player experience so you kind of get like something which is a bit more hands-on and very very linked to the gameplay experience rather than just like trusting the game engine to figure it out for you that to me is going to be the big difference between uh games with good soundtracks and games with great soundtracks moving forward like even the good soundtracks will be amazingly recorded beautifully composed all that good stuff um but that final level is like how well is it does it like feel connected to the gameplay um, as opposed to just being slapped on top um, and, uh, and kind of forgotten about. Um, but that's, if I could, if I could write a book about that and, um, you know, sell it, I'd, I'd probably retire because there's a lot of science and psychology that goes into that. Like what keeps a player immersed? Like why does a piece of music hit in a certain way when it's tied to a certain image? That's something that's very hard to define but you know it when you feel it, right? Like how many films have you watched when like the music just kind of hits you and you're like, you have no control over it, um, but, it just, but it just works. Well, that, that composer and that director made that choice after probably trying out several different things to get there. Uh, and it's the same in, it's the same in games. Like the, you know, the, 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 the choices we make that affect the player, um, and we spent so much time on this in the Ori games. It's, it's so important to making moments really hit and resonate the way they should. Um, and it just takes time and there's a lot of failing that happens because you're like, oh, uh, music didn't hit quite the way I wanted it to. And you recompose and you're like, what's, what's, the, what's the best moment of this scene to hit? And so, but as you do it more and more, you start to watch scenes and you get an idea of like how scenes are constructed so that you can write the music in the best possible way for that, for that scene. The, the only way you get better at it is with, with more experience. And the way to do that is to play the games more, at least in my opinion. I totally agree. And I, I remember you talked about in one of your interviews that that's why you guys didn't do a lot of the vertical layering because you would encounter an enemy 
and playing like a, a, a percussion loop on top and then defeating the enemy and it going away. It just sounded, in your words, too gamey, too kind of gimmicky and that sort of thing. I'm curious, how do you how do you toe that line as a developer? Because obviously these are dynamic mediums. The player can take a really long time to beat the game. How do you how do you like technically make it so that you know that the music is going to tie into those story beats effectively and, and provide those emotions? There might not be an answer for that, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. When um, in the case in the case of Ori, when you when you're looking through the game, I look for what I call switches. Um, and I don't mean literal switches, but it's it's more like just points where I can change the music and the player won't notice. Um, very simple example, a door opens, a door closes, very obvious place to change the music. You, you finish a puzzle, you have, a, you have a little stinger, and then you have an excuse to change the music that happens after it. Uh, best example, very easy example um, that we've literally just talked about, um, the environment in Shadows of Moldwood, it plays dark music when you first enter Shadows of Moldwood, when the environment is resolved. In the same environment, it plays a much lighter, happier piece of music. That's all a choice. I could have totally not done that and just had the same environment piece of music play afterwards. But that I was like, well, that's not going to fit the story. Um, uh, another simple example, uh, opening of the game in Will of the Wisps, Ori split up from Coup. Um, very sad melody plays. Um, it's called Separated by the Storm on the soundtrack. Um, Ori progresses through the environment. Eventually, Ori picks up the sword. Um, a stinger plays, a little cutscene plays, and then the music that plays after in the same environment uses that same sad melody, but hey, Ori has a sword now, and the accompaniment is a bit more peppy because, like, hey, finally something good happened. Um, it's very, very simple stuff. But like those switches, I'm like, well, we've taken away control from the player because it's a cutscene. And so I can actually now, if I wanted to, and I do this elsewhere, I can actually use the cutscene because it's a linear piece. I can actually use the cutscene to modulate to a different key as well, um, which you can't really do in a looping track. Um, and so I'm like looking for all of these points like where I can, I can change the music to, to shift in a way that the player won't notice. And sound effects are a great way, great way to, to, to hide shifts. One other example is very simple. It's in the ancient wellspring. I've, I've cited this a few times in other interviews, but there's basically this room which rotates 90 degrees each time you get to the end of it. It's like a puzzle platforming room. You go in, you pull a lever, the room rotates 90 degrees. And each time you pull the lever, these giant gears grind, grind in to, in terms of the sound effects. And I'm like, and, and then the, the room is changed. And I'm like, I can change the music here. Um, and it's literally almost the same arrangement of the music that's been playing in the ancient wellspring, but it's slight, at a slightly quicker tempo with a slightly busier arrangement and a slightly higher pitch. And then you go through, pull the lever again, the room rotates 90 degrees, and I do the same thing again. Change the tempo, change the pitch, slightly busier arrangement. Do it one more time, same thing. And then the final time, uh, the music is completely resolved and it's much calmer because you've completed that puzzle room. Now, did I need to do three different recordings and three different arrangements for a room that's for some players, well, they will only take like a minute doing if you're a really good platform player. And I was like, no, probably didn't need to do it, but it felt cool to do it at the time. And it actually didn't cost me very much because it was mostly a copy and a paste and add like a couple of different elements and then just do a new recording. Actually, that was the worst part of it is like having to record it again. Because it wasn't, we weren't just doing like a, a time stretch and and uh, a digital alteration. We actually did do new recordings for each version um, of of the ninety degree room, and 
But, but each time, you know, Ori literally pulls a lever and then the room is rotating with giant sound effects. What more obvious place could you choose to have music change? And I was like, this is a little thing that players won't consciously notice, but they'll subconsciously feel it, especially if they're struggling in that area. And again, these are choices I make throughout the game. I, I, I can honestly tell you that if we had time, which we don't, um, but <laughs> I could map out every single cue in the game and where it changes because it is literally burned into my brain, even though we finished it over a year and a half ago. Um, I could literally tell you where every cue change happens um, because that's, it's, to me, it's all just one big map. Um, and I don't know if that really answers your question, but it's like, because your question, your question was like, how do you decide? And it's like, you know, technically you can get anything supported, like, because all that, all it requires is when, when Ori gets to this point, like this music now needs to change. Now the difficulty happens on the technical side when players can do things in a different order because it requires tracking so many different things that Ori has done. Um, and that we had to battle with for a while. And I had an amazing audio implementer, Guy Whitmore, um, who is like the music implementation god, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, I would just basically describe to him what I needed. And I'd make recordings um, of me playing the game with my music overlaid on top of it and a PDF describing how I wanted the music to change. And he was like, yeah, that's enough. And then eventually it happened. Obviously there were some mistakes, but I'd be able to find them when I was testing. Um, but generally speaking, you can get tech to support whatever you want. And, um, you know, I decided that the best thing for Ori was to have lots of horizontal changes, um, which is why I needed to look for all those switches. The vertical layering, it just felt gimmicky to me because it just reminds you that you're playing a video game. Uh, you know, one of my pet one of my pet peeves is when you're, you know, exploring the environment in an open world game and then the combat music appears. And sometimes that's cool, but like sometimes it's so on the nose and, and direct. Like that's when layering is really helpful because the combat music, ideally, you shouldn't actually hear it at all at the beginning. You should actually hear, hear the sound effects first, in my opinion. Like maybe someone shooting at you and then the music should maybe kick in, but in like a low intensity way. And then as it maybe you're in combat for longer, or it gets more intense, then it should build. But there's, there's still a lot of games, and sometimes it's appropriate, but there's still a lot of games where like the combat music comes in in full when actually nothing is happening on screen. Um, and that's that's not so great. But I think games have kind of moved on now where we can kind of do like that vertical layering thing in a more interesting way, um, as opposed to just being on and off, like ambient music and combat music. Combat music. Now it's more like ambient music and then combat very low intensity combat, low intensity, medium intensity, high intensity. Um, that of course introduces its own complications because then you've got to record five different layers and that's very expensive. So it's like, what's the benefit? And if you play a game like Witcher 3, I don't want to speak for Witcher 3 developers, but I'm pretty sure that there is little to no vertical layering in Witcher 3's combat music and everyone loves it. Because there is something to be said about the film familiarity of hearing the same combat music or like similar sounding combat music, maybe just a different arrangement, but the arrangement is the same every time. Um, the other great example, of course, is the old Final Fantasy games. You know, like how many times do you hear the combat music in like Final Fantasy seven or eight? It's literally hundreds of times. And there's this fear of repetition in a game music. And I think it's one of the poorest stereotypes of game music that exists because 
you don't have to fear repetition if the music is good. Now, what does good music mean in video games? It's, it's not necessarily about it being good, it's about it being fitting. And what I like to say to people is, you know, Ori's, Ori's packed full of loops. Like, there's so many looping tracks. Uh, most of them are like three to four minutes long. But I challenge anyone to find a comment that says the music is repetitive. And I'm not the only game. I'm not saying, oh, look at what a brilliant composer I am. It's not about that. It's like, it's it's about music being fitting. When it's fitting, the repetition isn't noticed by the player because they're immersed. And that's the key. You start to notice repetition when you're not immersed. But when you're fully immersed, your brain doesn't notice things like that because you're just in the flow with the game. And that's that to me, you know, that's that's where it comes comes all the way back spending time with the game that you work on because I feel like I know what's going to immerse the player the best because I've spent time with it and I'm not always going to be right um, but I've got a better chance of being right because I've spent so many hours with the game. Wow I really brought that full circle quite skillfully I'm quite pleased with myself there. <laughs> I'm curious about kind of going back to your arranging workflow. So I'm a composer that comes from like a retro chiptune yeah. uh, style. All my commissions have been kind of that in, in a very loopy video game, gamey yep. type uh, uh, pastiche. And when I listen to Ori, it, it strikes this really good balance between being ambient, but then punctuated by these powerful melodies that come yeah. in in different permutations. When I go to the orchestra and I go to orchestral scoring, which I want to get better at, my my pieces always tend to sound very loopy and gamey. Like it's very clear this is like a looping piece and it's like the, the seam of the loop is very obvious. Do you have any, any tips for someone like me who's maybe coming from like an electronic or chiptune style going into orchestration? You're, you're gonna laugh at this answer. I mean, because because I've been following this general guide basically since USC. Christopher Young, the film score composer, is at least was, I think he still is a professor at USC. Um, he does a, a guest class every week. Um, he's done Drag Me to Hell, Spider-Man, a couple of other things. One of the best, best lessons he taught me and taught the class was that he thought the best structure for film music, and this is a man who scores intense horror movies, like with really crazy aleatoric stuff going on. He's like, the best structure is the pop song structure. Um, and I'm like, the first time he said that, I'm like, wait, what? The pop song structure? And then he was like, I'm going to show you the pop song structure in this crazy aleatoric piece. And then when he, he gave us the score, and I'm like starting to look at it, I'm like, there's all this crazy stuff on the score. But then you start to see the patterns, and you're like, wait, this is the verse. And then he's like, yeah, this is the chorus. And you start to see it, and then it's like, yeah, this is verse two. And this is chorus two, and this is the bridge, and then this is the chorus three, and then the outro in this aleatoric piece. But, but when you start to see it, and it's like, look, if you have the thing, and the thing is, if you have a great structure for a track, you can rearrange it in multiple ways. 
And it's also not going to get tiresome to listen to because you're, you're balancing that repetition with new content. You know, every, every pop song, not every pop song, but most pop songs, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, outro, something like, or something similar. And that's enough variation because you've just mentioned, oh, it has, you've just mentioned Midori. It has this ambient thing, verse one, chorus, melody. Um, and, and I float between the two. Um, let's take Shadows of Moldwood. It has an intro. Then you have the piano melody, verse one. Then you have the creepy strings part, chorus one. Oh, wait, then we repeat the piano melody again with the solo violin, verse two. And then chorus two is a bigger version of the creepy strings build, chorus two. Um, and then you get to the, and then there's the outro and then the track repeats again. So that's a much simpler variation of the pop song, but you could go through every single environment track on Ori. And I guarantee you, you could probably work out where the verse and the chorus are is in, in each song, because that's to me, there's a reason why that length has lasted for as long as, as long as it has like the three minute 40 pop song, like look at most of the loops. They're probably between three to four and a half minutes. Um, Shadows of Mold was an exception because it's quite slow track. Um, that's like five minutes, but they all follow a similar structure. So you get that natural variance with the verse and chorus and then a bridge if you want one. Um, and then by the time you get to the end, you well, first of all, it also makes writing a bit easier because like once you've got your verse and your chorus, it's like, well, now I can like actually start to reuse material. It's one of the biggest problems in game music is the fear of reusing material. No, repetition can be good. You just got to make time to make sure that that material is good and listenable in the first place. Um, but you can reuse material in slightly different ways. It's, it's composition 101. Like what's the first thing we learn in music school is theme and variations. At least I feel like it's one of the first things we learn. So, you know, when you have your theme, like maybe find a way to vary it, uh, like play it slightly differently, just change a few notes or elongate the rhythm or modulate, or there's so there's even more simple, just play in a different instrument done like it's not that hard and that and then ins instead of just doing like the, making it feel repetition you've actually got some variation each time which makes it the ear not even though the ear is hearing the same melody or a similar melody they're actually hearing it's actually hearing something different because you've you've changed it up enough but it has that familiarity that makes you oh yeah it's that melody i heard like a minute ago and i'm hearing it in a slightly different way oh that's like that's pretty cool um you just got to make sure that the initial material is solid in the first place. Um, so I spend a lot of time on that initial verse and chorus. When I have that, I'm like, well, I can write that Shadows of Moldwood gave birth to the entire Moldwood Forest music, More of the Spider and Through the Darkness. It all stems from that initial melody and harmony and those creepy string builds. The rest of it is not really composition. It's arranging, all based on that initial I don't know, two minutes of material, two minutes of material generates about 16 minutes of material. Hey guys, it's Matt here. I just want to take a quick break from this interview to tell you about something cool that I've just made, namely a course. It's my very first one, and it's all about the fundamentals of composing great video game music. I've pretty much taken everything I've learned interviewing the fine folks on this podcast, as well as my own composition experience, and I've tried to distill it into the ultimate primer for how to make great VGM. Now, if there's one thing I've learned from these interviews, it's that the most enduring game music 
has a strong harmony, a strong melody, and a really strong arrangement. Yet it's these three core disciplines that tend to be overlooked in favor of the newest, coolest sound design trick or a fancy plugin, but I focus on them exclusively in this course because I think they're super, super important. And I teach you how to make great game music with entirely free or very cheap tools, so it's accessible to pretty much everybody. Now, I'd love to help you reach your own game composition goals, so if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, head on over to composercode.com course. And if you decide to buy, enter the coupon composercodefan, all one word, at checkout to receive a 20% discount off the course for being a loyal listener to the show. Anyway, back to the interview. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I, you think back to some of the best games in the classic games, like even Koji Kondo going all the way back to Super Nintendo and how Super Mario uh, World is essentially based off one melody. And he repeats that, varies yep. it in different keys and different yep. styles. And he essentially gets so much mileage out of a single motif. Well, I think I think one of the things I should probably mention is that, like, you know, one of the biggest problems, especially you know, in very large games, you're often subjected to the dreaded minute count. Like, oh, we we need 60 minutes of our music music for this game. And I'm like, well, what if you need what if you need 65? What if you need 70? You know, what if you need 90? Um, you know, I projected that Ori 2 would need 150 minutes of music, but it actually ended up having 210. Like, and that's partly my choice because how how can you possibly how can you possibly know? at the beginning of a game. You can't, when you sign the contract, you have no idea. So I'm like, so basically what, what you know, when, when I'm like figuring out like my deal with the, with the client, I'm like, like, let's try and get in the ballpark and like, what would I happy be doing the gig for? And then I'll figure out the rest. Like, you know, um, unless, unless things get super crazy. Um, and the problem with the minute count is it, you know, you end up looking at these, these loops and it's like, yeah, we just need a 90 second loop. I, the only time I write 90 second tracks of combat music, because they, they generally can be shorter for boss tracks, you know, three, three minutes, because they, you know, they need to tell a story. Um, but, um, and you can't write like a 90 second Ori track, like just because I feel like when because, I listen well, to an Ori track slow, and it needs to, you, you know, most of my melodies are eight to 16 bars. And so you're already, you've already covered a minute for your section a, and that's exactly shadows of mold is a perfect example. That long drawn out piano melody, it's long and drawn out. So you've got to take a minute. And it's like, well, if we're already at like 60 seconds. And so if I'm hitting the repeat point in 30 seconds from now, well, of course it's going to sound gamey and loopy um, because we're hearing the same thing. So I'm like, well, screw it. I'll just write a chorus. And then how do I elongate this track? I'm like, hey, I wrote five minutes of music today with the Shadows of Moldwood track. But actually, did I really? Because honestly, I wrote two and a half minutes of music and then just copied it and then changed it slightly. So it's really to two and a half minutes of material and then it's arranging for two, two and a half minutes. And I think that fear of repetition and also the fear of developers of having long tracks because it ups the minute count can actually prevent you from like, you know, write, but there's no excuse anymore. We're not limited by space or storage limitations. So there's no, that, that's, that's a completely invalid excuse. The budget thing, I mean, that's up to every individual composer, like how they want to handle that. But this is the one problem, and I'm not the only composer that thinks this. Um, this is the one problem with like the charging by the minute of music because you just can't possibly know. It's impossible. Um, you know, every game has a, has a different requirement, and you discover as you're scoring the game, like, oh, we need a bit of music here. We need a bit of music here. Oh, there's a bit that needs music that I didn't even think about. 
Um, and so do you can... find it's better for you to say, like, I'm just going to charge by the project. I'm going to over, over, like, sort of review the entire project, what my perceived needs for this project, and then charge based on that. Is that a better strategy that, that, That's for you? one way of doing it. I mean, I think, I think what's good, you, you obviously need to try and scope it at the beginning because, like, so you, you need to have a rough idea, but it's like, yeah, if you have a target, let, let's just say we're using the minute count as a target and it's like, well, look, okay, let's maybe do this minute count and I'm happy doing it if the minute count, if the minute count is 20% less and I still get paid the same, usually unlikely, especially in my case, because I generally write too much, but also if the minute count is 20% more then I'm like still fine doing it for, for this project. Like it's, you know, it just gives everyone a bit of flexibility. Um, and, you know, the developer might be like, well, you're going to try and like write less music so you can get paid more. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You've got to trust me to like actually do what's best for the project. Um, so it gives it gives leeway either way, because, you know, this this you know, Ori is a game that has a lot of music by definition. Um, but, you know, there's going to be some games where you're just like, actually, silence might be better here. Um, and that's a decision that the composer might have to take. And that's also part of the creative process. So, yeah, you kind of want to... I just think being limited to a very specific minute count is a bad way to go. You need to work out a deal, either like a full package, like what you were just describing that you're like happy to do the project for, um, you know, and, it, and then you just have to be careful that it doesn't get stupid. It's like, well, we, you know, we expected 90 minutes of the project and now you've got to do six hours. Well, obviously that's like not good, but, um, and it's, you know, it's unreasonable, but generally it's having a target minute count and then like giving you some leeway either way. Um, gives you gives you the flexibility to um, do do the score that's best for the project, but it's it's not easy because every game is different, and um, you just have, this is why you need to spend time with the game as much as possible because then you have the best idea of what the the game needs. Um, and like I said, that track um, with the three different arrangements with the room that returns turns ninety degrees, like. That was my choice and mine alone to do that. I could have totally not written those tracks and I doubt it would have affected the gameplay experience at all. Um, but I was like, this is the thing I want to do. And I think it's going to be cute if I do it here. So why not? Another example is in the, the Wellspring Glades, um, which is the sanctuary area of, of Ori 2. Got this really nice uh, you know, ambient track. It's kind of relaxing. It's really the only other light track. But when you go inside each hut in the Wellspring Glades, there is a different version of the melody it's very stripped down because you're in an interior and in each each hut has a different melody so that's like six different arrangements of the same melody in in areas that you'll only stay in for like maybe 10 to 15 seconds but i'm like yeah whatever it's just the same melody so there's there's one for like pizzicato strings only i'm like it's the same melody big deal it's like it literally took me five minutes to write because i already had the melody there's one which features the bassoon which is an instrument i hate but i was like i'm going to put the bassoon in just to show that I can actually write something for bassoon. Um, and so I put the bassoon in like one like area of the game. I was like, this is the one place in the entire Ori soundtrack where I'm going to feature bassoon because it's kind of hidden. Um, and another, another room is completely ambient. There's like no melody at all. Um, and so there's like all of these different versions of the melody. I would say each arrangement like probably took me like 10 to 15 minutes to do because I already had the melody and the harmony. So it's just like, all right, this is a composition exercise but it gave each room a slightly different vibe, um, each hut in that area, a slightly different vibe. Did I have to do that? No, we probably could have had the, um, the main Wellspring Glades track just continue playing when you're inside. But I'm like, it's those little details. I'm like, that actually doesn't cost me very much at all. Like, 
And I was like, that, those are the kinds of things it's like, well, yes, it ups the minute count. Like, you know, if I was being really harsh, I'm like, oh, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've added another six minutes of music there with all these six new music tracks. And then the developer's going to be like, well, we didn't ask you to do them. So that's kind of like what I'm talking about with the whole leeway thing, because there's going to be some tracks which I want to add, which aren't even on the asking list. Like those tracks in the Wellspring Glades and um, in the ancient Wellspring with the, the, the 90 degree turning room, they were not requested by the developer at all. The developer was like, just do what, do what you think is right for the game. And that's what I thought was right for the game. And so, um, yeah, they didn't cost me very much. And I think for some people, or I know for some people that they noticed those things. So to me, if one person noticed it, then it was probably worth it. When you start with the, um, when you start with a piano sketch, I imagine you do start with like a, a sketch. What's your workflow for then orchestrating that sketch? I know you have an orchestrator, but I imagine you're probably making some mock-ups, you know, on your own to see how things sound. Do you, um, you know, because that's what's so intimidating to me is assigning those things to sounds, you know, whether it's strings and, and winds and brass and how they all interact with each other in the human voice. And do you have a typical workflow for that or is it different every time? It mostly comes from experience, but like the, the I mean, the first thing I do, um, I would describe, for the most part, my orchestration isn't hugely adventurous, um, but it's always fitting for the music. So, like you know, I, it's all it always starts with emotion. Like what I, I'm not worried about blends or anything like that. It's like you know, when when you're making when I'm making orchestration decisions, like what do I want the music to say emotionally? Um, you know, most of Ori's music is fairly comforting. So, what does that mean? Like we're going to have really nice open voice chords in the strings. That's like a really good place to start. And if we're doubling, we need to do that in the brass and woodwinds as well. When we do tension, it's like, then we close up the voices a little bit more. Um, as, a, as for like what instruments to choose, that really honestly is inspired by the visuals. Like what instruments do I, do I feature versus what instruments do I, do I hold back? Like Shadows of Moldwood features, you know, the uncomfortable shifting strings, even though they're not atonal, they're still like unstable. Um, so a lot of it, the decisions I make, it's, it's less, it's less like, how do I make the correct orchestration? There is no correct orchestration. It's about like, what's, what's fitting. If you you can do anything you want, like that, that's kind of like my starting point. And then once I've like gotten the instruments that I want, then I start to think about like, how is this going to translate to being performed live? And then I'm like, okay well, that's going to sound terrible on strings. So maybe I need, to, sorry, that's going to sound terrible on violas. So maybe I should like put it in the violins instead. Um, but I, I do what I want first and then think about how it's going to translate to being played live, um, which I can obviously get help with from an orchestrator, but I feel like it should be in good hands. Sorry, it should be in good shape before it gets into my orchestrator's hands. Um, and so I'll make, it's funny, I would say my mock-ups are very accurate and very detailed, but actually there's not that much MIDI data on them. I, I am, I am uh, a fan of the ensemble patch as opposed to, um, you know, writing out violin one, violin two, viola, because the thing is, first of all, um, you just run into all kinds of problems when you're like layering all of that up. Second of all, it just takes more time. Uh, third of all, Frankly, a good orchestrator should be able to figure out what violin one, two, and viola means from an ensemble patch anyway. Like, and I just find that the ensemble patches sound better um, in terms, like they, they say more emotionally. My job, and I think the composer's job with the mock-up is to sell the emotion of the piece. 
if you're focusing on realism, and again, this is obviously with the benefit of knowing that it's going to be recorded by a live orchestra, but if you're focusing on realism, uh, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you should be focusing not on making the most realistic sounding mock-up because your audience will not care. What's the best example of this? Final Fantasy VII. The scene, the scene. I'm not going to spoil it because there's still a bunch of people who haven't played it um, and are probably waiting for part two of the remake to come out. But there's that scene and it still packs an emotional wallop even though it's MIDI. I don't need to say anymore. You, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you played Final Fantasy VII. I'm guessing you have because I think you're a pretty big JRPG fan if I remember correctly. I, I have not actually played Final Fantasy You have not? not the, okay. Not, uh, not the remake. Okay. okay. It's okay. Uh, not the remake, but you played the original? I have played the original. Right, so you know what I'm talking about. Right, so uh, yeah, because that, that scene is going to happen at some point. So um, yeah, and it's it's a very powerful scene with MIDI. Um, so players don't care about the mock-up. They care about the emotional impact of music. And so that's what you should be focusing on. And then you just have to focus on replicating it with the live orchestra. So, so my mock-ups, at first I'm like, need to deliver emotionally. And then I worry about like configuring it for the orchestra. And generally, honestly, all I do when I'm considering that is unless it's a special effect, like, you know, like the screeching strings or, you know, very low wood, like Coilock, for example, features bass clarinet in its lowest register because it's a wonderful sound. Um, but generally speaking, I write the instruments in the range where they sound best. And you can get that from literally any orchestration book or even Sibelius will tell you like the normal range and then the extended range of, of an instrument. That's not difficult information to find. Now, if you don't know any of this, and this is advice for any composer, um, if you don't know all of this and you're tired of looking through YouTube and you, or the idea of a textbook is annoying, um, well, then the next best thing, obviously a little bit tricky given we're still in COVID times, but that's coming to an end, hopefully. Uh, but the next best thing, and this is what I did when I was in school, uh, the best way to learn about an instrument is to write some music and put it in front of a player and then not just have them play it, but then ask them, is this easy? Is this difficult? How could I write this better? What would be more idiomatic for your instrument? Because the dangers of composers writing at, uh, at the MIDI keyboard is that they're not thinking about like, what the real players can do. And that can lead to things. It doesn't matter whether your music's going to be recorded live or not. There's a reason why some mock-ups sound bad. It's because like, yeah, an orchestra wouldn't do that. And of course, the counter argument is like, yeah, but we can do things that the that like we can do things with samples that an orchestra could never do, and that's cool. And I totally get that argument. But if you're trying to produce something that sounds like it's orchestral, the classic mistake young composers make is um, giving a French horn like the endless epic melody, and it's like, well, why are they going to breathe, bro? <laughs> uh, like that's uh, you know that's that's not you know just like forgetting what and because the lack of breathing makes it sound unnatural and. That is the biggest thing that uh, is forgotten in mock-ups is like music needs space to breathe. And I'm not, you know, it's, it's not just like literal breathing. You've got to have like ebb and flow in the music. Like there's got to be points where you can like actually take, take a breath. And so that is, that's actually what will help it make your mock-up sound more natural is like thinking like, how would a player play this? And you've got, and to that extent, make your mock-ups more realistic. They've got to feel performed as opposed to just inputting the notes. So, you know, this, you know, this is another thing that you really should be doing on all your mockups is your mod wheel or your whatever you're using to control your volume or expression, it should be moving constantly. Because when you're when you're bowing a violin, is it exactly the same 
tension and pressure every single time, uh, even through the bow. Like, no, it's not. It's, it's going to be slightly wavering the whole time. And so, yeah, if you look at a skilled mock-up artist's MIDI data, you'll see, you'll see, like, it's just constantly moving. Like, all of the, and you don't need to be doing that much. Um, in, you don't need, sorry, you don't need to be doing lots of different MIDI CC data. You need to be committed to, like, just doing, moving one or two. That's not, that's not very difficult, and it's actually not too time-consuming. It's funny, because when I'm doing my mock-ups, even though I could edit it after the fact, I tend to want to re-record the whole phrase if I didn't perform it correctly on, uh, you know, you can, you can go in and just like totally edit the curves, but it's like, I feel like I want to perform the string line or perform the wind line uh, until I'm satisfied. And it's stupid because it probably, I could probably fix it quicker if I just went in and used the mouse to fix it, but it just doesn't feel the same. It's still like, I need to perform it because then once I feel it's performed, then I can like trust someone else to perform it. Um, and it's, it's those things rather than focusing on like, oh, the, these samples aren't realistic enough or, oh, my reverb isn't quite right. Or, uh, oh, the, the, my favorite topic that people spend way too much time on is how do I get the reverb of this sample library to match the reverb of another sample? Library? What a waste of time. Like no one cares. Like seriously, no one cares. Like seriously, just stick it in a good reverb and it'll probably sound good. Like, uh, and you know, if, if if you're getting to that level, it's like honestly, it would just be easy for you to go and record it. Um, because, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. Because none of none of my clients really care because you know that they they just want to hear the emotion in the music. That's all they ever want to hear. So if you're doing that, you're in a really good spot. Um, if you're spending too much time focusing on realism and what sample library is going to be life changing, because apparently they're all life changing now, um, you're stop just stop just focus on the tools that you have and then figuring out like how to make them perform better you know no piano player started off with a steinway they probably started off with some terrible like upright piano that was out of tune but it's amazing how good you can get how great a sound you can get if you really learn that one instrument it's no different to learning an instrument you've, you've got to spend time with the tools you have rather than thinking um you know, getting this next tool will make me a better composer. No, it won't. Spending more time with the tools that you have will, will make you a better composer. And to extend that, if you have the luxury of working with live musicians, spending more time with live musicians, you might think, well, I don't have time to spend, I don't have the money to afford an orchestra. No, you don't. But there's probably a music school not far away from you. Or there's, you know, there's probably some people in your town or, or a local orchestra in your town who might be willing to, you know, give you 30 minutes of their time to like teach you a bit more about the violin and how it works. There's really like no excuse for like not being able to find like real musicians that will trust me, especially after the pandemic, real musicians will be more than happy to engage with you and maybe like play a part in, in, uh, in bringing your music to life. Um, because it's been a real tough year, obviously for everyone in the music industry. And I think, I think they're going to be super enthusiastic about getting more involved. So, um, I'd encourage composers to go out there and, you know, make some, make some new friends and meet some new performers. And, um, you know, maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's the easiest way to add life to your music is to get one person on your soundtrack. Um, and, uh, you can end up forging like some really great relationships for a really long time. Um, you know, my, several of the people I've hired is because I found them on YouTube. Um, David Peacock orchestrates for me. I hired him because he did a string quartet arrangement of Ori. 
um, and he's now like orchestrating the vast majority of my work. Um, Kristen Nagus, who's a very, very well-known woodwind player at this point in the game community. Again, I found her because, uh, I mean, I was aware of her because she performed on some other soundtracks, but then she did a cover of Spirit Tree uh, from Ori 1. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I discovered that she owns like 6 million woodwind instruments. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to take advantage of that. And she's taught me so much about not the oboe and English horn, which are two specialist instruments, but actually like how uh, woodwind instruments from around the world work and what their limitations are and what you can do with them and what you can't do with them. And yeah, I treat the idea of having live musicians and performers, it's not just benefiting me in terms of, oh, I've got a great performance. Uh, it's a very educational thing as well. And uh, what we are doing as composers is a never ending education. Man, I just, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I feel like you've shared so much actionable advice. I just, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, where your career takes you from here. And uh, your work on Halo, of course, is very exciting. Yeah, I appreciate it. All the best to you. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Composer Code. For more resources on video game composition, including dozens of other composer interviews just like this one, head on over to ComposerCode.com. Thank you.